Good evening, class. I am so glad that you've joined Clifford Baptist Church for our evening Bible study on this Wednesday evening. We have a great group here in the sanctuary, uh, and I am so thankful that we are together to study God's Word. Uh, we're going to open our Bibles tonight and uh, look at King David, and we're going to see how God used this man in his work as we go through the Bible and the high points and the mountaintops of the biblical message of the love letter that God wrote to us and the connection that runs throughout that letter that we know as His Holy Word, the Bible. So as we begin tonight, welcome. Glad you joined us by streaming as well as those in our sanctuary tonight. So let's start with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, thank you that we are here with Bibles open, ready to hear your word, Father. Thank you for this study. And we are in the midst of a study right now, Father, where we're learning and for many Biblical students who have been uh, in the Bible for many years, this is an area of biblical history that we need to concentrate on. Sometimes it gets a little foggy as we understand how the prophets and the kings and the judges and all work together. Uh, but, Father, we know that you are going to give us that historical view of your Bible. And we know be far beyond that there is a message in the history of the Bible that runs throughout the Word of God. Your love, your justice, your grace, your leadership in the life of Israel, your leadership that continues in our lives as well. And so, Father, we thank you for the connection of the Bible that joins it together and the thread that runs through the Bible that makes it one continuous story of God, the truth of God as we learn it, Lord, and as we study it. So bless us tonight as we share together. And again, I thank you for every student who have, who's tied in with us that we might hear and understand and glean the truth from your word. Lord, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. Well, tonight, as we begin, let me remind you that the general heading of the study that we're doing right now in this particular section of the Bible is the kingdoms and the prophets. And so that's the general heading. Now, tonight, specifically, this lesson that we're going to study is on King David. Uh, this is lesson number 16, and I think this lesson puts us right in the middle of our study. Uh, we're going to go 31 to 32 lessons uh, for the entirety of the study. So here we are at about the halfway point as we study King David. I want you to take your Bible, and this is here in the sanctuary and there in your home where you're uh, studying with us. Open your Bible with me to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Uh, we, they, we're going to see the life of King David tonight, and the, uh, the life of David uh, begins in 1 Samuel, but we also see now as it comes to 2 Samuel. So do open your Bible with me there, 2 Samuel. Now, if you were to list some of the most important personalities of the Bible we've studied thus far, that would include, of course, Adam and Eve, the first creation of God in humanity. Uh, would, it would uh, include Noah uh, and his family who were uh, saved of God, favored of God, as they went from and through the flood, God gave them salvation. Uh, Abraham, who was called the friend of God, and of course God, is the, God chose Abraham to be the father, the patriarch of a brand new nation, the nation that we know as Israel. And uh, uh, we are grateful to God that Abraham was the progenitor, the beginning of the nation of Israel. Israel. Then his son Isaac, the promised son, the miraculous birth uh, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah, his wife, was 90 years old. God gave them 
Isaac. And of course, it was very much a natural, normal, biological birth, but miraculous when we're looking at the ages of their parents. Then also, uh, Isaac became the father to Esau and Jacob. Uh, Jacob was the deceiver. He was the trickster in the midst of those two twins of Jacob and, uh, and his brother. Uh, and, of course, his brother uh, was uh, called Red, and so we're thankful for these twin guys. But we know that Jacob of the two was the deceiver, uh, and he turned to be the man of God. And he was the man who was renamed by God Israel. And he's the father of 12 sons who become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, one of those sons was Joseph. And Joseph, the son of Jacob, was faithful through persecution. He saved his entire family uh, through his leadership in Egypt. And then, of course, Moses, the chosen of God, who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, and so while these are major men of the Bible, I want us to remember tonight that we cannot slight the women of the Bible. There are so many important women of the Bible that are within the story and within the account of God's blessing uh, to this world and to the salvation of humankind. We remember Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Rahab. Uh, and Rachel, and Esther, and Deborah the judge. Women play such a key role in the biblical history and in the Word of God. And you'll see more evidence of that uh, and the women's role within the Bible as we move through these lessons. Uh, tonight we are going to look at King David. Uh, he starts out life as a shepherd boy. He is the youngest of his family. Uh, he is less than a standout from his brother's. Uh, if you remember when they were seeking out a king for Israel, his brother Eliab comes and he is pointed out as, is this the young man that's going to be the king? But it wasn't Eliab, the first of the brothers, but it turns out to be the little shepherd boy who is the youngest of the brothers. He was a talented musician. If you remember uh, within the scripture that we studied last week, when King Saul, the first king of Israel, was having such a problem with craziness, in order to calm him down in those moments, they brought in a musician, and quite ironically, it was the shepherd boy David who was talented on the harp. Uh, and so David, of course, is an interesting personality as we study him tonight. Scripture reveals that uh, David is handpicked by God to play a huge role in the history of the Bible. It seems that God pulled this little underdog out of the lineup of Jesse's sons. He was the youngest, and while the older brothers of, of this young man, Joseph, were, they, they were uh, rather David, they were masculine and they were soldiers in the army of Israel. David, the kid, is the one who brings victory to the nation of Israel. He steps up to defeat the Philistine giant Goliath, and he saves his nation from defeat and from oppression and from captivity. If you missed last week's lesson in, uh, in our study of 1 Samuel, we need to read that. Uh, the people absolutely love David. And if you remember from the last lesson, the first king of Israel was Saul. Let me back up to say this, especially if you missed the lesson, you need to hear this. There came a point in Israel where God led Israel through the judges, and the judges gave Israel God's word. They represented God's word. But there came a moment, 
after the 15th judge that Israel begins looking at all the nations of the world and they say, we don't want to be led by judges. We don't want to be led directly by God's word anymore. We want to have a king like every other nation has a king. We don't want to be standouts from the world. We want to be like the world. And so we want a king. We want to be led by a man as all of the other nations are led by a man. So the first king that is chosen for Israel is King Saul. And if you remember, Saul grew to hate David. And in fact, Saul tried to kill David for 10 years because he knew that David was close on his heels for kingship of the nation. And after Saul's ugly death, David does become the king. He is anointed. He is set apart as king over the house of Judah. Now, there are two sections of Israel, the house of Judah and also the house of Israel. Uh, Judah is, are the southern tribes. Israel are the northern tribes. So David becomes king over one set of tribes, and that is the tribe of Judah. As uh, we see that, he's anointed king, and we can see that he's anointed as king over the tribes of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. But the kingdom is divided. The Israel section of the nation is still led by Saul's son, whose name is Ishbosheth. He is the one who is reigning over the house of Israel, the, nor the northern tribes. So Judah and Israel, the two, the two sections of the nation, are really in conflict for seven and a half years under two separate kings Ishbosheth over the house of Judah, uh, Israel. David over the house of Judah. Now, seven and a half years of conflict in the nation because they were serving two different kings. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. And here's we see as we pick up about this conflict. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Of course, Saul was dead, but his son Ishbosheth was the king, serving as a representative of Saul's dynasty, Saul's family. So the transition of power from Saul's dynasty to become David's kingship was very slow. Well, finally, Saul's family, led by Ishbosheth, was overcome by David, and David takes over as king of Israel as well as being king of Judah. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 5. Look at verses 3 through 5. We're right under where we stopped just a moment ago. Uh, so we're looking at 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. And this is God's word. So the elders of Israel came to the king, to Hebron, and King David made a league with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Remember, he's already king over the section of Judah. Now he's being anointed as king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. So, I hope you're with me in this little history lesson here. 
David reigned over a part of Israel for seven and a half years, and then he took over all of Israel. He took over the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the entirety of Israel, and reigned there for 33 years over the entire nation of God's people. So David is king over Judah and Israel, and this period of history, write this down if you take notes, this period of history in Israel is called the United Monarchy meaning that all of Israel is reigned by one king, and his name is David. All of the nation at this point has one king. This period of the united monarchy will have two kings to rule as they are in one unit, one group, and that is, of course, David. But then also after his 33 years of ruling both houses, Israel and Judah, uh, then also his son, King Solomon, will take his place. So Solomon, who was a son of Bathsheba and David, will take over the kingship and reign in his stead. Now, when David became the king over all the nation, he made Jerusalem the capital city. So our Washington, D.C., the United States of America, is Jerusalem to Israel. As we see the location as, as uh, David is centering his kingship in Jerusalem, he comes to a, 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 a very important moment, a life-changing moment. This thought came to him. It probably had not occurred to him until this particular moment, but something comes to him that absolutely takes over his mind, something that has to get done. Now that he is king over both Judah and Israel, now that his kingship is located in Jerusalem and his palace is there, something happens in his mind and he realizes that something needs to be done. Let me ask you this before I tell you what it is. Have you ever had moments that something happens that changes your life? Well, of course, we all do. Uh, the moment that men, you said, will you marry me? Or ladies, you said, yes. <laughs> that moment changed your life. The moment that a, a baby comes into your family or the loss of a mentor or a parent, uh, or a great friend. In Hebrew, those life-changing moments are called a bathkol. In the, in the English transliterations, that's B-A-T-H-C-O-L, a bathkol. That moment that you come to that changes your thinking and changes your life. Well, David had a bathkol as he was king, as he was in Jerusalem as he was surrounded by the magnificence of being a king, David had this moment of, wait a minute, something just occurs to me, something is not right here, and something needs to change, and here's what it is. Here's David's life-changing thought. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's life is at peace. He has had his battles, but all is going well for him now as the king of entire nation of Israel. But look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Here's his moment. And it came to pass, when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all of his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. Stop right there for a moment. So David said, I'm living in a mansion here. 
the house of cedar, that was a beautiful place, the mansion of the king. And he said, I'm surrounded by all the comforts of life, and yet the presence of my God still resides in a tent. There's something wrong here, that bath coal of here I am as a king living in luxury, and my God still resides in a tent. And it disturbs him. It's just not right. Well, you remember for hundreds of years as the Israelites lived their nomadic lifestyle, as they traveled in the wilderness, as they went into Canaan land and and took it over, they traveled in a, a movable worship space went with them. That movable tent of worship space was called a tabernacle. I'm sure you all remember that. A glorified tent of meeting where the people of God meet their God in this movable tent. King David realized now that his government and his kingship is centralized in Jerusalem that no longer did God need to reside in a tent. They're not traveling anymore. Uh, They are now confined to that space of Jerusalem where his kingship is there. And so King David desires to build a permanent structure for God in that home city of Jerusalem, that city of power where he's living. He says, God needs a home here. No longer should God be living in a tent. I need to build him a structure that is permanent here in the city of Jerusalem. Now, David had a trusted and spiritual advisor, a prophet. His name is Nathan. You'll hear more about Nathan in just a little bit in David's life. But Nathan inquires of the Lord about God's direction for David to build a permanent house of worship. And and God gives Nathan a vision. I want you to turn with me, look at 2 Samuel 7. You're still there in verses 4 through 6. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel 4 through 6. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying... Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. So Nathan's vision continues now and goes on. God says, Tell David these words about the transition from a tent to a a structure. Look at 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 9, first of all. So verses 8 and 9 say this. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. So here we have God speaking through Nathan to David, saying, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Now skip to verse 12. And God continues on and says, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish thy kingdom. He meaning somebody else, someone from your family, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
Well, as we look at those words from this book of 2 Samuel, God says, no, David, you're not going to build the house. You're not going to transition me from the tent, the tabernacle, into the permanent structure. I've not chosen for you, David, personally to build the house. But your son will. Solomon will build me the house. The next king of Israel will build me the house. Your son will become king, and he's going to build the temple. He's going to build the permanent structure. But also I want you to notice these words of God. Uh, There's pointing to someone who is beyond David's son. They're pointing beyond Solomon. Yes, they do refer to Solomon, David's coming son, but they refer beyond Solomon. I want you to look again. Look at verses 13 and 14, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14. He shall build an house for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So if we look beyond Solomon, looking beyond David and his son Solomon and building the house, who is God referring to here? To his own son, Jesus, the Messiah. Here we see the prophecy through God's own word in 2 Samuel that his own son is truly going to build a kingdom that will be from everlasting to everlasting. So there's a dual meaning here, a description of Solomon and a description of the Savior here in 2 Samuel 7, verses 13 and 14. Now I want you to remember, all of this is still a vision that God gives to Nathan. So Nathan is reporting God's word to David And how does David receive it? How does David react when Nathan the prophet relaying God's word and Nathan tells him what God says? Well, look at at Scripture here about it. 2 Samuel 7, verses 18 through 20. 2 Samuel 7, go to verse 18. Then went King David in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? that thou hast brought me hitherto. And this was yet a small thing in my sight, O Lord God, but thou hast spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of man, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. In other words, what David is saying in this moment is, Lord, I'm accepting your will. It was my heart's desire to build you the house here in Jerusalem. But if you're choosing that this is not the moment, this is not the time, and you're going to use somebody else, I humbly bow to your will. If it's not me, I accept that. So David is humble before God. And, and that, that, that typifies David's kingship. He's a, he's a great man seeking the will of God. Remember, he is referred to as a man after God's own heart. A great man, but he also has a great sin. Probably most all of us know what this sin is as we get to this point in chapter 11. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We see a sin that marks David. His adulterous affair with Bathsheba. I think you know the story. Let's just give it an introduction. 
2 Samuel 11, uh, and I want us to look at uh, verses 2 through 5. Hear then these words, 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 5. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. And she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am with child. Let me pause here to say this. For every one of us, all men and all women, we need to vigilantly guard our witness. You know, David is an amazing man. The Bible describes him as a man of supreme strength. You know, as a boy, by the strength of God and the direction of God, he kills Goliath. When no other soldier in the Israelite army would come into that valley and face that nine-foot-tall man with a coat of mail and a huge helmet and spear and sword, not one Israelite soldier would take up the challenge to come into the valley and stand hand-to-hand and head-to-head with that giant of a man but little David the shepherd boy did and ultimately killed him he was an amazing man beginning from boyhood he was an amazing man in that he was a servant of God a man who wanted to strive after the heart of God he was the writer of at least 73 of the 150 psalms in your bible he was a man led of God and I believe very very intelligent But what's the first thing we think about when David's name comes up? Well, I can't speak for you, but I can tell you what I think about the first thing when David's name comes up. Bathsheba. How he slipped, how he fell. One of the greatest men of God who ever lived, and yet when I hear his name, for the first thing that comes to my mind is his fall into sin. So what I'm saying here to you and to me, is that we need to diligently guard our witness. We need to guard our lives. We need to be careful. Uh, We need to keep our witness at our heart and on our minds at all times because when our witness falls, we may reclaim our position with God and our position of leadership and our position of love with so many other people, but, but it I don't know that we ever overcome that fall in people's memories. You know, uh, that's certainly true for me thinking about David, uh, and I think it's true still in our human minds. So from his affair with Bathsheba, a pregnancy results, and David descends deeper into sin to cover up his stupidity. Remember, this, this man as king had access to... Many, many women. He did not have to pick out a married woman. 
He had access to so many women, and yet to cover up his stupid act, he, he descends further into sin and into a spiral downward by sending for her husband to come back home from the battlefield. He's a soldier, Uriah the Hittite, one of the great soldiers in David's army. They're on the battlefield. So David has this plan that he thinks is going to work out. He says, I'm going to pull Uriah the Hittite off the battlefield. I'm going to give him some time off, give him a little recuperation time. All the other soldiers stay on the field, carry on the battle, but I'm going to bring Uriah home. And when he comes home, naturally, he's going to stay with his wife and he's going to sleep with his wife and that everybody will think that this pregnancy came from Uriah and not me. And so he goes a step further. He gets into sin and then he goes a step further and falls deeper into sin by lying, by pulling up some kind of project that's going to cover the tracks of his sin. And then, of course, Uriah is this great soldier who says, how could I offend the army from which I'm coming and to, to sleep with my wife when the rest of my brothers are out there on the battlefield? No, I can't do that. In order to maintain my honor with my brothers on the field, I will not do that. So he sleeps at the doorstep and will not go in his own house. David's plan fails. So David goes to a third point of sin. If Uriah will not stay with his wife, then the next step of his plan is that he will send Uriah to the very front of the battle lines. And all the other army members are going to pull back, leaving Uriah exposed, and he will be killed on the battlefield. And that is exactly what happens. And then David marries Bathsheba, to make it all look normal, to make it all look upstanding. But these terrible plans that he in his mind thought, these are the best laid plans I know to make. I have covered up my tracks. I have finally married her, and when a baby comes, everything's going to be above board, or so Israel will think. But God is displeased. No, God is past displeased. God is furious with what David has done. The best laid plans, anger God. Look at this verse. Look at uh, 2 Samuel eleven, twenty-seven. And when the morning was passed, after Uriah's funeral service was done, the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her to his house. She became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well... Nathan confronts, Nathan the, the prophet, Nathan the advisor, Nathan the friend confronts David with this heinous sin. We can't go through it all tonight, but I want you to write this reference down. Those of you home, those of you here, write this reference down. 2 Samuel 12, I want you to read all of chapter 12 in your devotional time to see how Nathan confronts David with the truth and unveils the fact that he had fallen into such deep sin. He'd not covered it up, but it was out there and light had been shed on his terrible sin. So the result of David's sin would be the loss of this child that was conceived in adultery. 
Now, let me interject something here that I think is very important. I've answered this question or addressed this question in years past when we go through uh, Scripture like this. This was God's decision in dealing with David, in dealing with David's sin. But this is not always the way God works. And I want you to understand that. I want you to hear that. Yes, the Bible is very plain, very specific, that God took that baby on to heaven because of David's great sin. But that was God's decision at that point, and it was the best thing that God knew to do. Well, God always knows the best to do. God always knows the wisest to do. But he does not always work that way. When we sin, he doesn't always issue us punishment like that. It's God's will, God's plan, God's wisdom, and how he knows he can lead us back to righteousness. All of us sin, all of us mess up. But God does not regularly punish us with tragedy when we fail him. Certainly we see that does happen here, but that uh, is God's wisdom here. It's also God's wisdom in how he treats us so that he brings us back to forgiveness and back to righteousness and back to his path. I want you to remember the words. Write these, uh, this reference down. This is one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11. Just listen to these words. It says very well what I'm trying to say here. Psalm 103, uh, listen to verses 10 and 11. God, he hath not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. But listen again to verse 10. It says, God has not dealt with us after our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquities. That's a statement of God's grace. Uh, God doesn't bring us tragedy when we fall away from him so far. God is not centered on simple punishment, but rather God's heart is how to bring us back. And in this particular instance in David's life, taking that child on to heaven was the way God, in his wisdom, chose to bring David back. I think that's important for us to hear. Uh, it's not always his method. I don't believe it's his major method of dealing with us. But... If God only wanted to punish us, if God only wanted to bring punishment about in our lives, the cross would have never happened. God wants to give us forgiveness. God wants us to be healed. God wants us to be forgiven. God wants us to be rebuilt. God wants us to be strengthened. And God will use our tragedies and our rough roads and our hurts so often, but it's always to bring us back. It's always to restore us, always to forgive us, always to get us back in his grace and in his righteousness. In this particular instance, God used tragedy of David's loss of a child to bring him back and to restore him and to make his heart soft and godly again. The result of David's sin and loss and time away from God brought about a psalm. And tonight we're getting toward the end of this lesson, but I want you to join with me in this psalm. It's one of the most beautiful in the Bible as we see where it comes from. It comes from a heart restored to God. Turn with me, uh, and you can close up 2 Samuel, but I want you to turn with me as we get ready to close tonight to Psalm 51. 
If you notice in the notes that precede the beginning of the psalm, in my Bible it has Psalm 51, a plea for forgiveness, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, listen, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is a psalm written upon reflection of what he had done in this great sin in his life. Uh, I have a few more minutes than I have on a normal Wednesday night, so I want to read verses 1 through 15 and just take in what David is saying here uh, in reflecting on his sin and God's righteousness. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Let me stop there and just say, isn't it interesting? David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against his army. And yet, when he boils it all down, he says, God, it's you truly that I sinned against. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in, my, in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that my bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. I love those verses. When David acknowledges his sin, remember, I said something Sunday, I don't want any person to forget, especially a lost person, you can't be forgiven until you first repent and are sorry for your sin. You notice David's sorrow here. Forgive me, cleanse me. And then he says, Lord, when you cleanse me and wash me and make me clean and put my feet back on that path of righteousness, do you notice in those last couple verses he says, and my tongue will show forth your praise. I will speak of your forgiveness and your blessing in my life, even through my own sin, how you forgave me. So tonight... If we have one person here in this sanctuary, or one person who's listening, who has never come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
I want you to know that the Bible says that all of us sin. King David's not the only sinner. In fact, he's, he's a sinner like all of us are sinners. There is no such thing as a gradation of sin, but sin of murder and sin of white lies are, are separate sins. Sin is sin is sin, and all of us sin, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. But David said, Lord God, I acknowledge before you my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me, and I know I will be forgiven when you, O oh God, give me your spirit and your cleansing. And then David says, and when I am clean, my lips will praise you. If you've never come to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come to him tonight. Just lay your sin down before him, all of us sin, and say, Lord, because of your cross, because of your sacrifice on that cross and your resurrection from your grave, I know I'm forgiven, and I know that I will have life everlasting because of what you have done for me. Lord, I want to acknowledge you. I want to repent of my sin. I want you as my Savior. And from this moment on, I will speak forth your praise. Just as David says here, that's what I want to do. My prayer that all of us saved, brothers and sisters, that we're thankful that God forgives sinners. But also tonight, if you've never been forgiven, never accepted a Savior, this is your moment to say yes to him. Next lesson. Is as David's life and kingship, it will continue and transition on over to his son, Solomon. Uh, also, we're going to lead from the united monarchy back to a divided kingdom again. Uh, again, this is history that Christians need to know within the Bible. Next lesson is a pretty involved lesson, so bring your notebook. Get ready to take some notes as we go on through uh, David's end of his life, on into Solomon's life, and how the kingdom divides once again. That's next lesson, number 16. But God bless you for being with me tonight and being here as we open God's Word, studying 2 Samuel. Uh, so may we close our study tonight with a word of prayer. Our Lord, our God, thank you that we have met in your house simply to pray and to ask you, Lord, to teach us. Father, thank you for the life of David. Thank you, Father, that indeed he was one of the strongest men, one of the strongest personalities of the Bible, the leader of the nation for 40 years, uh, a godly man, a man who was after God's own heart, a man who was strong from boyhood through the end of his life. And yet, Father, I acknowledge before you that whenever I think of David's life, the first thing I think about is what happened with Bathsheba. So, Lord, I pray that you will use that lesson in my mind and in our hearts that we guard our witness, that we are always looking to how we are to lift you up and serve you and live that life that is godly and righteous before you, Lord. Bless us, we pray, in that. Thank you that you forgive sinners. I am certainly one of those, Lord, who has needed to be forgiven, and I thank you for your forgiveness in my life, in the lives of my brothers and my sisters, Lord. I pray that as we realize the great gift of forgiveness, David in Psalm 51 expresses how wonderful, how great is your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that we too will acknowledge how wonderful it is to be forgiven of sin. And I pray that our lips and our lives will show forth your praise day after day as long as we live on this earth, Lord. May we live in praise to you. If there's one who has never received you, Lord, I pray that he or she tonight will say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me so much that you died for me on the old rugged cross to forgive my sin. You took my place of punishment that I might be forgiven. And Lord, I accept you as my Savior and I ask you, Father, to move into my heart, to show me the steps of life, 
and that my life can live out that purpose of showing praise to you from now through the end of my life on this earth and on through eternity. I accept you as my Savior. I give my life to you, and I thank you that you change me and forgive me and give me life everlasting. Father, for one person tonight who prays that prayer before you, we know that his or her eternity has changed because of the grace of a God who loves us so much that Jesus died on the cross for us. Bless us, we pray. Thank you for this lesson tonight. And I pray that you will bless all of our students as we learn your word and as we see the continuity of how you tie your love letter together. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining our study tonight. God bless you. And I hope I'll see you back here next week.